Today's guest, Anna Michel, and she's an organizational design consultant. So the first thing I will draw out when I do an organizational design is a stakeholder map. So I will ask the team to identify which stakeholders they will have at that three-year goal. So three years from now, what are their goals and who will the stakeholders of their organization be? And that's internal stakeholders, like the other employees and the management. There's external stakeholders, like their clients, their suppliers, their partners, etc., etc. And sometimes there are so-called hybrids, which are people like uh, investors, for example. So they're not super involved, but still they have vested interest in how the company operates. And then to add to that, I asked them, okay, and what's the most important desire that each of these stakeholder groups has? From that, you can then start deducting basically the core functions and the core processes of the company. So in order to satisfy the desires and needs of these stakeholders and reach those goals, what kind of functions do you need in the company and what kind of core processes, really strong processes, do you need? We talked about the journey of a company and how to transition in a very confident, proactive way through certain organizational stages, independent of if you are more an early stage company or a later stage company, or if you are in a phase where you would face different challenges in terms of planning, replacing yourself, replacing certain functions, structures, what are the differences on industries and the role of a founder and when it also may get obsolete at some point and how to deal with it. So a very um, high level and also um, abstract episode plus gives very different insights into um, a forward thinking way on how to look at organizational design. Then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically put it on the table. Hiring takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain situations. It's very, 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 very hard to change things. That was the learning. Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side. Yeah, today we have Anna here as a guest and we met at an event where another Anna invited <laughs> the both of us. Um, Anna Ott invited us to their HV Capital um, portfolio talent day talent summit um, yeah exactly talent summit in in berlin and there you did a very interesting um, discussion and um, presentation on org design and everything that comes with it when a mm. company is growing transforming and changing and i thought hey anna um, we should talk and <laughs> now we are talking so that's that's good so um Maybe maybe you, you give us a bit of a context on how you know Anna as well. Well, actually, I've known Anna for a long time. We ran into each other very early on here in Berlin, kind of during the early startup days. Um, I used to be a serial founder, serial entrepreneur, so I founded a total of hmm, six companies in 10 years. And uh, so basically, it's, you know, how it goes in the Berlin startup world. Uh, people tend to know each other, you run into each other, and particularly people like Anna Ott, who's very very active and who does a lot of networking. And we've been very good friends actually for quite a long time. And so I was really happy when she invited me to give a little presentation on organizational design, because I think it's a super interesting and super important topic where I think it's really amazing that 
only very few people seem to really consciously work on the idea of an organizational design. Um, and, well, working with a lot of scale-up companies and helping them establish their kind of operating systems, I've basically now come across the fact that a lot of them tend to spend a lot of time thinking about their business strategy, but they don't actually think about how that translate into an, uh, translates into an organizational strategy. So how do I actually create an organization that will deliver on the results that I want to achieve? And so basically, I think that's one of the really important and really interesting aspects of my work to see how organizations develop and how you can really help them grow and achieve their goals or raise funds or survive in the worst case scenario by actually making conscious decisions about designing an organization and not just having it as a kind of chance byproduct of the decisions that you're taking. Hmm. And how do you get an org design specialist? So that's <laughs> not something what you can study, I guess. You need to learn it as well somehow through experience. Well, it's actually quite funny because there's only very little literature on the subject, which I think is really interesting as well to see. Um, I'm actually writing a book on it at the moment, but that's still uh, a bit of way to go. So um, let's not discuss that in detail yet. But the thing is, um, I come from a, originally I come from a design background. So I'm trained to think as a designer. I'm trained to make conscious design decisions. And we're not just uh, decisions. And we're not just talking about aesthetic decisions, but in the end, we are talking about strategic decisions as well. And so working as a growth coach and growth consultant with companies and working with certain frameworks and different approaches, I realized that there's a real need to actually really think about how I would design an organization. And that's how it all came about. And so I started thinking about which components you need. And I started trying it out with some of my clients and saw how much impact it had and how much clarity it brought them. And so basically these days I twist every client's arm to actually do an organizational design. And at the beginning, sometimes they hate me a little bit for it, but in the end, they're very grateful. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, now you touched several um, terms. I would like to drill down a bit. Mm -hmm. First of all, um, frameworks and clients. So it sounds for me that you have always been self-employed or did you also um, did an in-house role somewhere where you scaled a company for, as an employee or did you always do it by yourself? So first of all, well, First of all, I started into my career as a product manager in the luxury goods industry. So that then it didn't have really mu that much to do with organizational design, although it was an interesting preparation because I think as a product manager, you have one of those interface roles where you need to oversee a lot of different things. And that actually led to me becoming an entrepreneur. And then I built and scaled a few companies. But when I sold my last startup five years ago, I actually became a what you would call a scale-up coach. So working very much with a specific framework and methodology called the Scaling Up Method by Bern Harnish, I actually, um, well, I trained to become a scale-up coach and worked with teams on implementing this methodology. And it's basically, it's a framework that helps you scale a company by looking at it from a very holistic perspective. Now, working with that um, and working with those teams and implementing those different methodologies, I found out that there are a few small blind spots in that framework. And so I started looking into other frameworks as well. And so 
for a total of three years, I worked quite closely with an organization from Munich, the scale-up company that actually has the uh, the rights to the German book of Van Harnisch and all that kind of stuff. But two years ago, we decided to part ways because they wanted to go in a strategically slightly different direction than I wanted to. And so since then, I've been my own boss, basically doing it as a solopreneur, freelancer, whatever you want to call it, and working with teams to help them implement, identify and implement the right frameworks and right tools for their, if you want to call it, management operating systems, how they might actually scale their companies and develop their organizations through a number of different tools that actually fit to their specific needs. And what, what, what's the scale-up framework? <laughs> it's, so the scaling-up methodology is actually, looking at it, I would say it's still, for me, one of the best frameworks for scaling a company because it looks, as I said, at the company from a very holistic point of view. So it looks at four areas, people, strategy, execution, and catch, and considers them to be a driving force for the growth of the company. So if you have great people, you'll have a good strategy. If you have a good strategy, you can have a great execution. If you have great execution, you'll generate lots of cash. And if you generate lots of cash, you can once again hire great people. So it becomes a virtuous circle. Or if something doesn't work, it becomes a vicious circle, and then you know exactly where you need to attack. And what Vern has done is that he's taken a lot of different existing approaches and tools and frameworks and brought them into one consistent array so that you can actually go through those four areas and really work on different aspects of the company through it. So I can actually, I can totally recommend the book. Hang on a second, I have it here somewhere. So uh, that's definitely a very good read. It, parts of it are a little bit, are starting to feel a little bit outdated, um, but all in all, it's still, to me, it's still one of the best frameworks that I've ever come across for scaling a company. In case you like my show, Please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. So the, the book is called Scaling Up? Mm -hmm, exactly. Scaling Up by a guy called Vern Harnish. We can put it in the show notes. Exactly. Um, and uh, so that's now interesting. There are four dimensions. But where to start when you start from scratch? At some point, you need to have cash. But to generate cash, you need execution. And to execute, you need a strategy. But somebody needs to build the strategy people, right? But Absolutely. if you don't have cash, how to pay the first people? So it needs to start somewhere. Where do you start? <laughs> Actually, scaling up as a framework. In my experience, it is super helpful if the founders are already familiar with it when they start setting up their company, because they will answer certain questions, especially around uh, strategy and around people um, from the word go. So that's super helpful. But it's actually designed, if you ask me, it's designed to start once you have your product market fit. You've basically, you've got a functioning operation, but in most cases, well, you talk about these valleys of death. So basically, you've got your product market fit, you're, maybe you're starting to be profitable or you've raised quite a bit of money or something, and now you need to really scale. But that makes scaling up is really helpful once you have reached that point and you need to start basically growing up. It's helping a company through puberty, if you want. And so um, implementing it at baby level may not always work so well, but it's really helpful if you start implementing it as soon as the company starts to really grow and achieve. So, 
in the in the maybe startup world we would say it's um, at the series A stage where it makes sense. Um, possibly. I mean, the thing is, in my uh, it depends on how big your series A is. Depends is it depends on where you are with a company because basically, if you have, you might still raise a series A, although you haven't got the perfect product market fit yet, simply because you're such an amazing founder and you can talk people into giving you lots of money. So I think it's really, I wouldn't necessarily go about series A or series B, but I would look at it from the business point of view of saying, mm. is it a working, functioning business? And yeah. then that's where it really makes sense. So maybe you can challenge me on that. What I have usually in mind as numbers when we say, okay, you're ready to scale and we're kind of looking at the real org to solve the problems instead of mm -hmm. something else um, makes sense. I think it starts from my perspective at around 100, 120 people because you have a certain management team usually established. You have enough cash um, that some kind of product market fit should be there because otherwise nobody would fund so many people that work mm -hmm. on something. Um, and usually when you have around 100, 120 people, a full org is already established. With some companies, it's maybe starting already at 30, 50, 60, where they start going in that phase. But this is what I just see from the outside, that latest when it's 120 people, it sh you should think of that when going further. And up to that, you can assemble somehow um, um, with, with different, I don't know, experts that just come in and do the stuff that, it, that, that things are working, founder-led. I would disagree, or I agree in the sense that I would say the very latest, starting from 100 people. But basically, I I see teams that do something like between one and three million in annual revenues with, let's say, 10, 15, 20 people, and they still benefit greatly from actually making their scaling a conscious choice and really making good decisions around this. So the smallest company I've worked with where I've seen that they've really had, where my work really had an impact with them, they were basically three people doing 500K a year. Um, so ba that's baby steps already, of course. And um, then you're looking more at some of the strategy aspects. And then you, but if you've really thought about this beforehand, especially about an aspect like culture, if you think about people and culture beforehand, you can actually hire and recruit the right kind of people. Because otherwise, if you have 100 people and basically some of them are complete assholes, um, you need to do so much tidying up at some point that in my experience, it makes a huge amount of sense to think about these questions much earlier. I mean, I, I think... Let me think the kind of latest stage I've started working with a company was when they were already kind of 300 people, 350 people doing very good business in terms of annual revenues. Um, and basically, when you look at it from an organizational design standpoint, if that's the first point in time you start thinking about stuff like culture, like structure, like processes. A, I would wonder how they got that far without actually ever thinking about it. And of course, they do think about it. But we had so much tidying up to do that it actually slowed them down quite a bit simply because we needed to really sort a lot of things out. 
So my recommendation would be rather to start earlier with thinking about these kind of frameworks and these methodologies and asking yourself those questions rather than starting too late. Of course, you need to be able to finance it. So either you need to raise funds for it or you need to be profitable and you need to be able to afford it. You shouldn't actually basically kill your startup or your scale up simply because you're investing a lot of money in organizational design or organizational development. But at the same time, at some point, you need to start doing it. So I would yeah. say it's much earlier. So, yeah, definitely. I totally agree. Um, maybe what I thought about, but I don't, I, I did not read the book. What I, I just remembered in terms of from a hiring perspective, where you need to start bringing in the, the expensive hires, like the mm-hmm. 300K hires, the 250K plus hires, right? Um, so I, I thought about... That's definitely a good point to think about it. But a lot of companies these days actually do that earlier than just uh, than when they reach 100 people. It depends on the industry. It depends on the state or uh, the situation in the market. So I think as soon as you start really thinking about um, building a management, however you want to call them, if you want to call them C-level, if you want to call them VPs, if you want to call them heads of, it doesn't really matter what title taxonomy you use. Once you start, as you were saying, bringing in the more expensive people, you need to have thought about to what purpose you're bringing them in. You need to actually tell them what what you expect from them, what you want them to deliver for the company. And things like and that. Then, and then uh, certain things should have been already in place, but usually they're not. So so in reality, I still see very often that companies don't even think of this. And I, I, I see the same that I sometimes feel like, how did they get that far with that little structure or that inefficiency sometimes? Because mm-hmm. things were just doing ad hoc on a daily basis all the time. And then people just burn out all the time and you could structure so many things, make it very systematic, make it very, make a very strong foundation to build the organization further, independent of product development, in sales, in marketing, in um, the people space, um, on operations and customer support. There are so many obvious things when you mm-hmm. just have been there and done that. I think it's easier. And especially with companies that are run or founded by founders who already did that, mm-hmm. they are more likely to start earlier, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, the more first timers they start a bit earlier <laughs> unless they're good listeners I would say <laughs> absolutely or unless they're um, well, basically very interested and they read a lot and they think about things and they're not just too I mean you can't be enough hands on as a founder of course but at the same time you need to always also be able to step back and uh, take a step back and think about okay why am I doing this how can I make it more efficient? What do I need? Where do I need to go? What do I need to do? And I think one of the, well, hiring people is one of the crucial things. Are you hiring to be the smartest person in the room? Are you hiring to be the dumbest person in the room? Do you bring on specialists? Are you willing to invest in knowledge and expertise? Or do you always kind of cling to your power of being the cleverest person in the entire company? Which only makes you turns you into a bottleneck for the entire organization. But let's let's structure a bit the phases um, in terms of org design on what what is maybe important and not so important at certain org sizes or company stages. I I, I know I think there is no one fits all model. This is I think what we can agree on upfront. <laughs> but maybe there are some patterns you see. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the actual, the approach isn't that different from whether I'm talking about a 30 people company or a 
300 people company. The approach stays the same. It's just the, some of the results will be different. So what I like to do, well, first the challenges, and that's really interesting. If you talk about org design, what a lot of companies do, if they do it at all, they do it on a 12-month kind of time frame. So they do their annual planning and they go like, oh, we need to hire 15 new people in this or that department. Tricky thing is that on a 12-month kind of time frame, there's very little you can really do to develop people, to bring people on board, bring people up to speed. So what I really like to do is I like to take a longer time frame. So I like to look at, the, uh, at a three-year target. So as the foundation for an org design, I'll, I'll sit down with the team and tell them, okay, so tell me what your goals are, what targets you need to reach in three years' time. So we talk about the three-year strategy. So in some contexts, it's called the three-hack, the three-year highly achievable goal. So my three-year goals are the foundation. And then something I like to do, because I come from a design thinking background, is to do the whole thing quite customer-centric. So the first thing I will draw out when I do an organizational design is a stakeholder map. So I will ask the team to identify which stakeholders they will have at that three-year goal. So three years from now, what are their goals and who will the stakeholders of their organization be? And that's internal stakeholders like the other employees and the management. There's external stakeholders like their clients, their suppliers, their partners, etc., etc. And sometimes there are so-called hybrids, which are people like uh, investors, for example. So they're not super involved, but still they have vested interest in how the company operates. And then to add to that, I asked them, okay, and what's the most important desire that each of these stakeholder groups has? From that, you can then start deducting basically the core functions and the core processes of the company. So in order to satisfy the desires and needs of these stakeholders and reach those goals... What kind of functions do you need in the company and what kind of core processes, really strong processes do you need? And I think that's always a really good first step to really say, okay, so how do we actually go about this? Yeah. Taking, taking that, you can start drafting out a org chart, but really just from a functional point of view. And that's actually interesting because, and that's where the three-year time frame comes in again. In my experience, when you ask people to draft a new org chart as a design, um, there's always these kind of uh, the usual suspects who basically get promoted and who get their roles and everything simply because they've always been there. If you look at it on a longer-term perspective, people tend to find it much easier to think just about functions and roles instead of specific people. And then, of course, you need to think about which basic parameters you want to use. So, for example, how many direct reports should someone lead? Because when people draft an org chart, what I very often encounter is one uh, manager who leads something like 15 direct reports. And if part of that manager's job is also to actively lead and develop these 15 people, that's impossible. It's never going to happen. He's, he or she is never going to be able to produce the kind of performance and to develop 
the people in the with respect to what the, the company actually wants to achieve. So setting parameters like how many direct reports should someone have as a max is one of those basic parameters that I think you need to answer before you start drafting out in your org charts. Yeah. And what I also see is that sometimes there is also a difference in certain industries. For instance, you need to design an organization dif differently when you build a B2C consumer product, an app, for instance. Um, then it's also different when you have hardware involved, for instance, like a mobility app where you rent a scooter versus just a shopping app, for instance. Mm -hmm. Or also um, a B2B SaaS company also needs to operate very differently than, for instance, a highly regulated fintech or legal tech company so what do you do in that sense um, when you have different industries well the tricky thing is which comes on top is that there's no not one standard right answer for any kind of industry or any kind of product so of course i mean that um, when i say draft an org chart design in my experience most teams take they run through let's say between five and 20 different options for designing this org chart. It will have a huge impact on the performance of the company if they integrate certain functions and certain departments in one area or another. They might have really big parts of the organization um, in one department and then have really small, really lean organizational um, elements in others. So depending on which kind of product you have, which kind of industry you're in, which kind of preferences you have, which kind of processes you need to establish, there are usually half a dozen at least different options of how you can design your organization. And it's about running, in my experience, it helps to run through a certain number of um, ideas and concepts and see which one works best with regards to fulfilling the desires of these stakeholders and reaching those goals. And so there is no, in my experience for an org design, there is no right or wrong answer. You just need to, and in some cases, you actually do need to iterate a little bit. Mm. So you'll, let's say you create an org chart design and an org chart design is not the same as an org design. Let's just kind of differentiate there a little bit. So let's say you create an org chart for your three-year goals. And then you start building your organization towards that image uh, or that concept. And you will, you might see that an idea you had of how you might combine certain functions or departments doesn't really work that well. And so you will recreate it. You will adjust it a little bit. That's perfectly fine. It's part of the process. And it's part of actually making your organization the best it can possibly be. Definitely. And... I think at the end, ultimately, it also comes down to who do you end up hiring or who takes the role, because it also depends highly on skill set at a certain level, what people can you afford to hire or is available on the market or exist even sometimes that can run certain functions in a certain way. And there, I think you really need to assemble along the way. Um, what I just also see is sometimes, for instance, um, B2B SaaS organizations, they're usually more sales heavy, mm -hmm. um, whereas a consumer app is way more perf performance marketing or content heavy, for instance, because then this, the whole product and customer journey works very different than in, in another industry, for instance, in healthcare, where you need to have a, a lot of regulations or in 
businesses involved with hardware, you need supply chain and um, some kind of op operations that is really maybe hands-on somewhere working, right? Where mm -hmm. this makes it not easier. <laughs> well, the tricky thing is, I, I'm personally, I'm convinced I like the, the approach rather a hole than an asshole. So rather not, don't hire someone if you can't find the perfect fit for the role. And the role needs to come with certain skills and it needs to come with a certain cultural fit. And so you need to really make sure that you answer those questions as well. What do you expect for someone to really fill that role, both from a skill set and from a mindset perspective? And Definitely. You, in my perspective, you shouldn't hire someone who doesn't match what you want from that role. It's just, it's silly. Yeah, and this is where we often step in and say, hey, this is what the market um, offers in terms of skill set, experience, mm -hmm. var variety, in terms of whatever you can imagine, any attribute. And then usually we try to zoom out and understand where do they want to go with the company? What's the, the purpose of a certain function? And then you never hire on certain profiles, but you hire on estimated future outcomes or needed outcomes they need to be delivered and then you just frame the people in a certain way with the en um, environment that is there and then usually they tell you what they need and how they would do it and this is actually also sometimes the blueprint on how to further build the organization of course at a um i would say six months 12 month step maybe but if you don't do the thinking long term enough that you can at least project and guess the hypothesis you have because it's nothing else um yeah. it's actually Absolutely. challenging the hypothesis on the market to understand okay do we find a common ground and then as you said do the people have the right mindset and attitude and also skill set to get there and, and make it happen yeah Absolutely. And if you actually, if you develop a kind of a target image of what the organization should look like to fulfill its goals in three years, the wonderful thing that happens is you can take your existing people and match them to the, to those future roles. And you can tell them, Hey, there's going to be this role in this company. And for me, you would be a perfect fit. You just need to learn the following skills. Would you be interested to do that? And then you, people can really say, hey, yes, I would like to have a development plan to make it there in three years. Or you look at the org and you say, hey, actually, I think the entire team would benefit greatly from bringing in someone from the outside in this specific role because they will bring a different mindset. They will bring different skills. But the crucial thing is you know where you want to go. And you really make conscious decisions about whom you develop, whom you let go, whom you bring in. It's really about creating an organization to fulfill your goals and not just hiring random people because you hope that they might be able to do the job that they'll need to do in somewhere between like six and 12 months. That's way too short-sighted. And yes. for most employees, they want to know where they want to go and how they want to, be, uh, how they want to build a career. So it helps and them as well. In case you have any feedback or anything you want to share with me, please send me an email on thomas at peoplewise.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. And in case you really enjoy the show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Also, one thing what I surprised me in the beginning when I made the first experience with it, that also leaders 
they need leaders. <laughs> um, because sometimes what I saw from founders is, yeah, yeah, we hire somebody and they need to, they need to tell us what to do. But to a certain mm -hmm. extent, yes, on a functional level, but not overall fundamental decisions. Of course, some leaders maybe have a certain opinion, but it also has implications on the overall business and on also all the other functions. And therefore you need somebody who take who takes responsibility and also says no to certain things and also just decides certain things and you can mm -hmm. never make the right decision all the time um, but you you're also not always wrong it's just important i think that also there is a certain level of leadership for the leaders um and sometimes that's sometimes really situation based as well right to to go to to, to decide for a certain style I'm going to say something a little controversial now, which is something that I've learned from personal experience. And it's actually, it's blatantly obvious. Practically every founder at some point reaches the end of their life cycle within yes. the company. Yes. And so the, and that is for many, many founders, almost all of them, that is the biggest emotional and psychological step to reflect on that, to understand that, to realize that they are not the best person for the job of running that company anymore and bringing in people who can. And something that I very often see when we do this org design on a three-year level, that's the first moment when some founders go, oh, hang on a second, I don't want to be that CEO or I don't want to be that COO, whatever, I don't want to lead a company of that size. I'd so much rather spend my time doing X, Y, Z. And if we then do that on a long-term perspective, it, it's so much easier for the founder to develop, and also me as a consultant, to develop a strategy together to see how we can really make sure that they make that transition and they bring in the right people, they find the right role for them. Because some founders still want to be involved, but they just don't want to be as involved as they would need to be as a CEO or CEO or whatever. So it's really, that's one of the most crucial aspects in my experience that founders face when they really look at how they want to develop their organization because they're forced to think about what those roles are and where they are in that organization and where they want to be. And then we can design everything around that to a certain extent. And I, I also think that this really takes gut and confidence because a lot of people are afraid to just um, face themselves with something like this, right? There is my company without me. Uh, it feels very... But and some also have a very strong um, binding towards I don't know certain people um, the culture the product the customers but also sometimes it's just ego yeah um, because they want to run it and they want to be in control um, even if it's maybe not the right thing to do so there are many different aspects as well and what I also saw sometimes is many founders they're so engaged and so obsessed with building this company that they forget about everything else in life. Um, mm -hmm. which for the company, for a certain stage, it's maybe the right thing to do, but it's not healthy in the long run. And then it's getting even harder if you don't have, a, if you don't have, I don't know, sports, relationships, um, anything social going on. And mm -hmm. that's the only thing in life you had over the past years. Then it's even harder. That is a terrible situation to be in. And some people even have those families. They have those hobbies and they just drop everything. And that's, that's even more tragic to a certain yeah. extent. 
I mean, um, it's really as a growth coach working with founders and with their leadership teams, that's one of the most difficult conversations that I quite frequently have to have sitting down with one of the founders and saying, honey, I think we need to start thinking about what's going to happen with you after this. Because there is going to be an after this. And maybe we need to start thinking about what that might be. I mean, I came out of my last startup with a really bad burnout. And it took me actually years to completely recover from it. And it's just, you, as a founder, when you're passionate and when you really you're really engaged. Of course, you deliver huge, huge value to your company. But if you burn yourself out, that value is going to be very short-lived. So it's really crucial that founders understand how to also manage themselves and how they can build and design organizations and structures and teams that will actually help them create the lifestyle that they want, create the life that they want, have the life and live the life that they want to lead. Yeah. Um, exciting. So I, we need to stop here, but I could go on. Um, what, what are some people you would recommend I should also interview, which I don't know, but you know? Oh, that's a good question. You need to give me a second to think about that. Um, someone with whom I always have really, really interesting discussions about questions of organizational design is um, a couple of consulting colleagues of mine who run a consulting business which is based on self-organization and holacracy, which I personally... Well, if I say I hate holacracy, that would be a bit too much, but I'm very doubtful of it. But they have a very strong differing opinion. So that might be an interesting uh, couple of people to talk to. Rufen and Kai yeah. can uh, give you their details. Um, who else? That's fine. I think if you if you just think of it and um, uh, throw it in my way, because this is, I think, the fun part of also podcasting, that I let it really happen on who is next by people who are, are already on the show recommending someone. Absolutely, yeah. So I think, especially from, a, from the point of view of organizational design, that question of how many levels of hierarchy do you want to have? How do you approach decision-making in flat hierarchies and things like that? It's really interesting to chat with people who've got experience with uh, self-organizing um, structures and people. So I think that might be a very interesting add-on to your collection of podcast guests, basically. Yes, definitely. Thanks, Anna. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much, Thomas. <laughs>